It's great to be with you guys today. Uh, welcome to our family gathering. If you're new with us this morning, uh, it's our honor to have you here and, and to host you. Uh, we call this our family gathering because we believe that we're the family of God because of the work of Jesus, and so we're grateful that you could join our family today. Um, just I wanted to mention two things before we kind of move into our topic today. Uh, the first one is that we're going to be praying for the Haiti team. John mentioned that, but we're going to be doing that at the end of our gathering time. Um, so we're going to have the team come up and uh, pray over them. We're also going to pray over um, Elizabeth, John's daughter, um, because she's in the hospital right now. She's getting surgery tomorrow, and that's uh, having a, an impact on the Haiti team. So if you're on that team, you already know that we have a meeting uh, later uh, in this after this morning uh, downstairs where we're going to be talking about uh, what we're going to be doing with that team and some of the changes that have to happen uh, because of this surgery and what she's going through. Uh, so the, and some of those things are just necessary for the team. So, uh, But we have good news to share as well, or potentially some good news for the team. Uh, but I'll save that for the, the, the meeting afterwards. The second thing is that I just have to say that Ethan was right. So, I figured I would say that now. Last week, what I, if you weren't here last week, my, my four-year-old defected from our household and he became an Eagles fan, um, even though my whole family is from New England. <laughs> and uh, and uh, his dad has been rooting for New England since he was Ethan's age. And so I tried to convince him and remind him of all these things. And it didn't matter because they taught him the Eagles chant in school. It just goes to show you how schools are going down the tubes these days. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he defected. So he, he said that the Eagles were going to win. I said the Patriots were going to win. And he was right. So I figured I'd just get that out of the way up front because everybody's been, hey, reminding me that Ethan was right. And my, I told Justin beforehand my over-under counter for how many I was going to get was like 36. And I, he says, well, how many, how many before you go nuts? And I said, 37. So I figured I'd just I'd do it all in one shot and get it out of the way. <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, it's good to be here. How about we get to, to some important things uh, this morning? So if you've been with us, we, we've been going through a series called The Gospel. And, and what we're doing in this series is that we're looking at several uh, key aspects of life. And we're asking the question, what does the gospel have to say about this? What lens am I using to, to see this aspect of life, this area of my existence or my community or, or this country? Um, because all of us use a lens to, to view the world. We're, we're, we don't just look at the world without viewing it through some perspective. And God's people are to be the people on earth who increasingly look at all of life and we ask, what does it mean to look at this particular area through the good news of Jesus? And so we want to do that with absolutely everything. And so we've been touching on several things that we maybe don't often get a magnifying glass put up to them to see what it is that the gospel has to say about those things. And so we've talked about politics, and last week we talked about pluralism, and this week we're going to talk about addiction. Um, and, and so this, this is one of those topics where it's a little bit difficult to wade into these waters. And I realize that in some ways I have an uphill battle uh, just to even address this topic because there are typically two camps of people when you talk about addiction. 
there, one camp um, basically thinks that addiction is a problem that other people face, but that it's irrelevant to their own lives. So they see addiction as primarily substance abuse, and they go, well, I don't you know, have a problem with those substances, and so that's other people's problems, not my problem. That's one camp. Now, there's another group of people, and that's the group of people in this room that just rolled your eyes at the first group, <laughs> right? Uh, because you, you have, you've experienced um, a level of addiction or you've studied and you, you, it's touched you in some way where you know that that first statement actually isn't true, that, that addiction is something that impacts absolutely everyone, and whether it's a substance, a chemical, or something else, or someone else, the, the idea of addiction permeates everything in terms of who we are. Now, here's the problem with both camps, though. Both camps think that they know all that they need to know about addiction. And both camps think that we, as 21st century Americans, have somehow arrived in our understanding of addiction, but that if you roll back the, the clock 2,000 years ago, at least, to when the scriptures were written, and, and the scripture we're going to read is even older than that, you think, ah, oh, what, what in the world could the Bible, what in the world could the gospel possibly have to say about addiction? We've learned so much in the last 50 years about addiction. I mean, anything beyond that, if you look backwards, is just going to be archaic. It's not going to have anything new to say. And so as I was praying for this morning, I was really, my whole prayer was, God, may your good news be news. May it bring just a level of depth of understanding that we may not have had before, whether or not we're studied up on the subject, whether or not we've had this personally affect us or not. Because the gospel is good news. It's news. And part of what that means is that it's going to be news every time we hear it and every time we apply it to something else. And so I'm trusting that God has news for you today, regardless of whether and how you've thought of this subject before now. Um, but I realize at the same time, this is a, it's a serious issue and it affects a lot of families. And uh, increasingly, it's affected our own. You know, we, we have the number of people in our family that we have today primarily because of addiction in someone's family. And so it's, it's impacting and affecting a lot of people, uh, us included. And so we have to think soberly about it. So, and I trust that the gospel has not just news, but a rich way of identifying some of the root causes of addiction, um, as well as, and maybe more importantly, some of the best ways to see us gain freedom, find our way out of it. Um, and so we're going to be in Jeremiah 2 um, today to talk about this topic of addiction. Primarily, we'll skip around to a few other places, but if you have the page number for that, can you shout that out so that you can read along? I've, we're not going to be able to put all of the uh, verses up here on the screen just because it's a little too long to do that. Jeremiah 2, verse, starting in verse 1. What's up? 523. Okay. Thanks, Aaron. All right. This is what Jeremiah 2 says. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of 
his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me, that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. That was a false god. Following worthless idols. Uh, Verse 20 says, Long ago you broke your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you washed yourself with soap and used an abundance of cleansing powders, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. How can you say I am not defiled, that I have not run after the bales? See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you've done. You were a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare or your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. As a thief is disgraced when he's caught, so the people of Israel are disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father. And to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are your gods that you've made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. Verse 29 says, Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Does a young woman forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Now, you might read through that verse and you go, why in the world are we studying this today? Um, or you might read it and go, wow, that seems incredibly relevant for, uh, for what I've experienced or what people have experienced around me. But I, I want you to see that Jeremiah gives as complete a picture of addiction as, as I've ever seen. Um, and so much, actually, of the under, our modern-day understanding of addiction, whether or not it's actually based off of the things that Jeremiah is saying, they are completely congruent with everything that he just mentioned. And so I, I want to see that he actually gives us some things. He gives us the source of addiction, he gives us the cycle of addiction, and he starts to give us the way out of addiction. 
And so those are the three things that we're going to look at. So let's look at the source, the source of addiction. If you notice, uh, when Jeremiah is speaking here, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord, all of the imagery that is used here is as a married couple who is hopelessly in love, right? I mean, they just seem so passionate for one another, so in love. I mean, they're, they're traipsing through the wilderness together, and they don't give a rip about what is going on in the world as so long as they have one another. That's kind of the imagery. But then something goes wrong in the relationship. Something is, enters the relationship that, that tears it from limb to limb. And we see by verse 20 that something incredibly wrong is going on because Jeremiah says this, Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you do what? You, you lay down as a prostitute. Now, you might not know what those th- things mean, but high hills and spreading trees were places where altars were set up to worship foreign gods. There were places where people would go away from the worship of the true God, Israel's God, Yahweh, and they would go to these false gods made of stone and wood that they had set up, and they would give themselves over and worship to those false gods. And so high hills were places where they felt like they were closer to the gods. They would set them up on these high hills. And spreading trees were symbols of facility. Now, notice what Jeremiah is saying, though, that they do in those places. It's pretty shocking, right? He's, he's not just saying you go there to worship. You go there to set up stones and pay homage. You go there and you give your money. You go there and you give your time. He says you go there like a prostitute. Do you know what the literal Hebrew says? It says under every spreading tree you spread your legs. Now, you won't find a Bible translation that will actually give you the raw Hebrew in there because I think most Bible translators are like, we can't say that kind of thing. Now, is Jeremiah just trying to shock us? I don't think so. I think he's trying to show us something about our own hearts. And what he's trying to show us is that whenever God talks about worship, whether it's worship to him or worship to other things, do you know the imagery that he uses more often than any other imagery? It's sexual imagery. It's sexual imagery. Why? Because he's saying that our hearts are actually attracted to things in the same way that our bodies are attracted to things physically. In other words, right now, for all of you, there is something going on in your heart this morning. There is something going on at the soul level. You are laying down with something spiritually. You're in bed with something. You're in the arms of something. You're giving, it, you're giving yourself over to it and making yourself vulnerable to it in the same way as what Jeremiah is saying that these people are doing when they spread their legs before every spreading tree. And the attraction that you feel to that thing that you are worshiping is just as powerful as any sexual relationship, as any infatuation with any young couple. So... What is it about, I have to ask this, what is it about physical attraction that, that is so powerful, that's so strong, that leads us to do crazy things? And, and Jeremiah actually shows us, he says in verse 23 and 24, consider what you've done, you're a, sh- a swift she-camel. There's an image, right? 
You didn't think I was going to call you she-camels this morning, did you? Um, running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat, who can restrain her? He's kind of tapping into our biology there, and he's saying no individual has the ability to reproduce themselves without finding a mate. And that, that inability to reproduce yourself biologically, to make children without your counterpart, is a picture of what's happening to you spiritually. So biologically speaking, every species has a male and female counterpart, The male has what the female needs. The female has what the male needs. And if they don't come together biologically, the species is over. I was watching... um, How many of you watched uh, Planet Earth 2? I put it on one night because I thought, man, this is going to be a nice relaxing way to go to bed. (laughs) Like, you know, waterfalls and springs and mountain scenes and animals frolicking through the, the, the scenery... And then, like, you turn it on and it's just, like, epic war. <laughs> You're like, man, it's, this is violent and it's crazy. And, and there's one uh, little story about a snow leopard. And, and how the snow leopard, like, you know, she, it was a female snow leopard and she had a cub. And uh, it was coming about the time where she was biologically ready to mate again. And it was crazy to watch this because you think, like, she... You know, she has a cub already. She has already produced an offspring. And yet, she can't help but audibly call out to every male in like a 10-mile radius. Even though, the, and, the, and the commentator's like, and she, you know, is well aware of the fact that any male who comes in will probably kill her cub. And yet, she can't help herself. Like, she's still calling out on the mountain for her suitors, even though that suitor is going to come and kill her daughter. Because she can't help herself. Biologically, she has to run to those things. She has to call out for those things because her biology tells her she absolutely has to do it. She is incomplete without the other. And she is dead unless she finds that counterpart. And that biology overrides any sense of providing security even for her existing children. And that's powerful. And what Jeremiah is saying is in the same way he's using this imagery, and he's not talking about sex. Did you notice that? What's he talking about? Worship. He's talking about worship. And he's saying because there's this deep longing, this deep desire in your soul, in your heart, that's even more powerful than an animal's desire to mate. You can't help yourself. You must run after these things. Do you know what those things are? You ask anybody and you kind of try to reduce it down to the basic necessities of life. And I'm not just talking about water and food and shelter, but I'm just talking about needs of the human heart. It boils down to these three things. Significance, Security and purpose. You have to have these three things, otherwise you don't feel human. I mean, another way to to put that would be that you, you need to matter, you need to belong, and you need to have meaning. Three other words to say the same thing. You need significance, security, and purpose. And the truth is that you and I are incomplete until we find 
an infinite, ultimate, never-ending source for those things. Which means you need to find someone or something just as much as the sexes need to find one another biologically. Because you can't produce them yourself. You're incapable of, of producing your own significance, your own security, your own purpose, just as much as that snow leopard is in is incapable of producing another offspring apart from a mate finding her on the mountainside. Now, this is so backwards to the way that our world thinks, isn't it? Because here's the way that our world thinks. I am significant in my own eyes. I don't need anybody to tell me who I am. I I matter, darn it. I have meaning. And I don't care what anyone says about me. Yeah, but... Eventually, something's going to happen which will strip the significance from you and you will question whether or not you're significant. I mean, if you're the kind of person that says, I'm secure no matter what happens, no matter if I have a job or don't have a job, I'm just, I'm blowing with the wind and wherever I land is where I land, it doesn't matter. Eventually, something will happen to shake that confidence. Because your security might not be in your career, but maybe it's in your health. And so it doesn't matter if you gain a job or lose a job or, or how long you're on unemployment, and you're fine. But what happens when you get sick? And, and that starts to erode where your true sense of security is coming from, and now you're a wreck. So if you say, my happiness is what gives me meaning and purpose in life. Eventually, you're going to get bored with your own happiness. And it's going to fail you. Everything does. There has to be something outside of you that is the source of your significance, your security, and your purpose. Everyone's the same. Everyone operates that way. And those are are good, basic needs that God has placed into our DNA. And so that means that your drive, your need to find and fulfill those things are going to lead you to something. They're going to lead you to someone or some pursuit or some relationship or some goal or some habit. Something is going to fill that need for all of us. The question is, what are we going to look to to do it? Because you can't produce them yourself. You can only discover the source. I'll say that again because it's really important. You cannot produce the source of your own Significance, security, or purpose, you can only discover the source of those things. And so here's, here's what the Bible would tell us. This is, this is the news of the gospel. If we're not discovering those things in Jesus, who promises to be our bread of life, our living water, our source of everything, if we're not discovering it in him, we will go looking to discover it in every high hill and under every spreading tree. In other words, I'm just trying to, I'm building in as much imagery as I can. If you're not in God's arms, if you're not, if you're not looking to him and hearing from him that, He is the one to give you value. He is the one to provide your security. He is the one who gives you your purpose and your identity in life. Then you are in bed with something or someone else. You're spreading your legs to it. You're giving yourself over it every bit as much as if you were a prostitute looking to it as 
the source of fulfillment, which it can't give you. So apply this understanding to addiction. You see how radically different this idea is than the ways that we often think about addiction? Because here's the trouble with camp one, as I mentioned, is that we, we, we think that addiction doesn't apply to us. And the gospel comes to us and says, yeah, it's not what you're, fo- you're focusing in the wrong area. Because think about what we often focus on when it comes to addiction. What do we focus on? We focus on the substance. We focus on the substance. And we think it's the substance that's doing it. It's the substance that's enslaving. It's the substance that's the source. And the gospel comes to us and reminds us it's not the source. It's not the alcohol. It's not the drugs. It's not the pornography. It's not the food. It's not your addiction to work or to greed or to your phone. It's none of those things. In fact, this is the way that Jesus said it. He puts an exclamation point on it in Mark 7. He says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. For it, it, meaning the thing that goes in, doesn't go into their heart. There's the key. It doesn't go into their heart. It goes into their stomach and then out of their body. It's not what goes into your stomach that matters. It's what's coming out of your heart that counts. It's not what you put into your stomach that defiles you. It's not what broke your relationship with God. It's not what led you into addiction. It's the fact that you're looking to other things. Your heart is craving other things to provide your significance, your security, and your purpose when only God can provide those things. In other words... It wasn't your stomach that caused you to crave the food that you're addicted to. It wasn't, first and foremost, your chemical makeup that led you to become addicted to the drugs that, you're now, that you now can't get off of. Those things can factor into and contribute to the enslavement, but they're not the source. It was your heart It was your heart that led you into those things and its need for security. Which means if you think that you're addicted and your addiction is only from the substance that you fail to see that it's just the symptom. It's not the sickness itself. It's the fruit. It's not the root. It's being produced by something else. And, And so I was thinking of trying to come up with a applicable definition for addiction, this, is, this I think gets added a little bit. That addiction is medicating our internal need for significant security and purpose with an external thing that cannot meet that need. It's medicating our internal need for those three things with an external thing that cannot meet that need. Now, camp number one, let me talk to you for a second. This helps us, doesn't it? Because who does this apply to now? It applies to your pastor. It applies to everybody in this room. Because we're all medicating that need. In our pain of not finding those things in the only source that can, then we look to other sources to provide it when they can't. This is what I do. This is what you do. 
and there are no exceptions. And that's the first step, right? Is acknowledging that we have a problem. Hi, my name is Jay. I have an addiction problem. So that leads us into the cycle, the cycle of addiction. How do you know that this really is your experience? How do you know that you're addicted to something? There's a couple tests in here that show a cycle of increasing desperation. Um, And the first stage of addiction that it says in here is that we elevate something. We take something good and we elevate its importance. That's why verse 27 says that they say to wood, which sounds ridiculous, right? (laughs) To a block of wood, you are my father. And to stone, you gave me birth. That seems preposterous to us, right? That you would carve something into a block of wood and then lay down in front of it and say, you're my daddy. You gave me birth. Because when we think of idolatry, when we think of false gods, when we think of sins, we think of like the big ones, right? We think of lying and we think of stealing and we think of murdering. We think of all these things that we do, these actions that we do that we should not do. But is there anything sinful about wood? (laughs) Maybe you're like an ash guy. You know, you're like... Yeah, I mean, pine is of the devil. I mean, who makes stuff out of pine? (laughs) There's nothing sinful about wood. There's nothing sinful about stone. Which means that false gods are not sins. They can lead us into sin, but they're not sins themselves. They're created things. Wood, stone, food, alcohol, sex, career. Created things that God gives to us as good gifts that we elevate to a place where then we say to those very things that God gave to us as expressive gifts of His goodness, we say to those created things, You made me. You define me. You make me who I am. You give me my identity. You give me my purpose in life. If it weren't for you, baby, I would have nothing. That's what we say to Him. And that's the first step. We take something good and we make it a God. Which then leads us to the second step of addiction, which is once we've made it a God, we, nest, we, have, to sac- we have to make sacrifices for it. We go to the altar and we sacrifice something on the altar of that false God. Um, and that's why verse 25 says, Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry, but you said it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. See, he's he's saying, your shoes have worn through and you're dying of thirst because you're running through the desert. I mean, who runs through the desert? It's not a great place for a track and field event. Because if you do it, you die. But listen to what they're saying. I must do it. I have to do it. I have no other choice But to do it in spite of the fact that it's killing me, I need to run after it because I'm getting something that I can only get from it. And here's the truth. If God is not the center, if Jesus is not the lover of your soul, the source of your significance, the one who provides you with ultimate security so that you don't need to look for it elsewhere, if he isn't the purpose and the, and the, the drive of your life, 
and something else will be. It will be your career and your job and you will kill everything to get up the ladder of of the corporate world. To gain an identity for yourself so that you can look yourself in the mirror and go, aha, I'm somebody now because I have this title after my name. Or you'll look to a relationship. You'll date someone or you'll eventually marry them and you'll, you'll need for them to provide for you those things. You'll need for them to constantly say how significant and beautiful and wonderful and terrific and perfect and spotless and sinless you are despite the fact that those things may or may not be true. But you'll need to hear it again and again and again and again and again because if you don't hear it, the day that you don't hear it, you feel crushed by it. And you will sacrifice to get it again and again. Whether it's from that person or a new lover. I mean... (laughs) Okay, take this with a grain of salt because I'm a Patriots fan. So I understand I'm, that I'm wading into dangerous territory here. But I un- listen, I remember what it's like when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004 after 86 years of a drought and, and people going, man, I wish my grandfather were here to see this day because it's amazing. You know what I mean? Like my, he... he Followed the Red Sox his entire life. He never got to see the promised land. And we get to see it. And I wish he was here. I, I understand that. Really, I do. Um, but one of the, I remember one of the things that I heard from a fan that was on the news. Mandy and I were talking about this. Is, uh, is somebody was saying, you know, for 53 years, I've just been walking around as a loser. In a city of losers. <laughs> and we had nothing going for us. And nobody believed in us. And nobody did this for us. And nobody did that for us. And this is the key line. He he literally said, now that the Eagles won, I realize I never have to be a loser again. I mean, there's fandom (laughs) and there's idolatry. It's a good thing to root for your team. But teams make horrible gods. They make horrible gods because... Guess what's going to happen? They're going to play next year. (laughs) And okay, maybe you're convinced that they're going to win the Super Bowl, but then they play again after that. And I I can just tell you from, from a fan of the winningest team in the last 20 years, you lose a couple games. And if your identity is wrapped up in the team, then every time they lose, you're a loser. Because your significance is now out the window. But if your significance is in something else, then you can stand on something much greater than the wins and losses of a team that you root for. So many of us, I mean, we, we, we make our kids our source of significance. And we think, man, if they're successful, then I'll be someone. Some of us make our political party's uh, agenda our source of purpose and meaning in the world. It, it's funny, because like the people that, that do that, that, all of us, right, we, we, we are completely blind to our sources of idolatry, and we are completely at the very same time condemning of people that have different idols than us. Right? Because like the people that are wrapped up in the political world, they're like, are you guys crazy? It's just a football team. And then they're like, but if my candidate doesn't get into office, 
then my purpose in life is completely out the window. And our, and our, and our nation is going to hell in a handbasket because we will no longer be secure. Where does our security come from? Does it come from our officials? Or does it come from the one who's above them? I'm confused. See, we, we will get it from anything. And anything that we look to and say to that thing, whether it's wood or stone or alcohol or politics or beauty or career or kids, we, we look to that thing and we say, you define me and without you I have no meaning. Now here's what happens when we do that, when we elevate it. Everything apart from Jesus has a diminishing return on our investment. Everything. Which you, so you look to it for those things. And in this, I mean, I'll use cigarettes as an example. If you've ever been addicted to cigarettes, if you've ever dabbled in or even if you've gotten over it, what happens to your, in the course of your addiction? You have one cigarette when you're like 16 years old and you go, oh, wow, that was like the best five minutes I've ever had in my 16 years of existence. And then you have another one and that experience is cut in half. And you have another one and it's cut in half. And you have another one and it's cut in half. And then, and then literally you, you have to sacrifice time going to the store Deep, deep amounts of money because the government keeps raising the price of it. But now you must do it and you don't get nearly the same return on your sacrifice that you did at first. At first there was no sacrifice and all reward. And then over time it's become all sacrifice and no reward. You're literally running through the desert with bare feet and, and you're about to die because you're giving everything that you have over to this thing that's not giving you anything in return. Does this sound like addiction? God knew what he was talking about 3,500 years ago. See, our, our careers, I mean, it, so it's not just cigarettes, it's, it's everything. It's not just substances, it's everything. Maybe your relationship was a spring at one time in the desert and it made you feel so important and so loved and so beautiful, but now that same person doesn't keep providing as a spring and you keep going back to them and you sacrifice for them. Maybe you sacrifice your time for them. You sacrifice your integrity for them. You sacrifice your morality for them. You sacrifice your spirituality for them because you're still looking to that person to give you what you think that they can give you. You're looking to quench your thirst from something. And at best, it's a fleeting shot of it before it's gone again. And over time, you find yourself giving more and more to the altar of that God. Sacrificing your marriage, sacrificing your money, sacrificing your friends, sacrificing your church family, and on and on and on it goes. Thinking that the more that you give to it, the better the return will be, but in the end it ends up taking everything. See, you you elevate something, you sacrifice for it, and then once you get to that point of sacrificing all, you hit what addicts call rock bottom, right? Which is that you despair of it. You despair of it. It's sometimes the only way that we can despair of a, a, 
of a false god that we've given ourselves to is when something goes terribly wrong in our life. And verses 27 and 28 give us a great picture of that. It says of these people that they have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they're in trouble, they say, come and save us. When, when, where then are the gods that you made for them for yourselves? Let them come if they can and save you when you are in trouble. Of course, we know the answer is that they can't save. Nothing can. Nothing can. And it's so... Here's the cycle. We elevate something, we sacrifice for it, we despair because we realize it's not giving us what we can't, what, what we need. And then when we despair of it, we look for another idol. And I've heard this so often with people, I mean, and others would, would resound the same thing, that even people that are in deep, deep addiction cycles, they get to a point of clarity and then they go, man, I, I can't, I can't give myself over to this because it's killing me. And then they substitute, say, the, the, the addiction of alcohol, the idol of, of alcohol that's covering the pain of their need for significance, the security and purpose. But instead of looking to Jesus to be the source of something new, they, they then look inward and they go, well, well now, just I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be an upright, upstanding individual. I'm not going to go down that road anymore because I've despaired of that thing. And then they elevate their own morality instead of the substance. And they become self-righteous. They're not addicted to the substance anymore. To all appearances, it looks like life is going well and that they're together, but they've really just substituted one God for another because they're not running to the God who is Jesus Christ come to save them from their need for significance, security, and purpose. Now here's the question. What happens when we fail again? What happens when we fall again? What happens when our morality or, or our willpower wears out? The God of, of our own will, the God of our own morality, the God of our self-righteousness, in the moment of failure, guess what it's going to do for you? It's going to fail you too because it will crush you with guilt for having fallen rather than give you grace in your time of need. And you'll be crushed by it. And then, here, and then so often, isn't this what happens when that... that moment of of my own, I'm going to do it myself, I'm going to do it my way, when that falls by the wayside, who do they run to again? They go back to the substance because they realize, okay, i got to go back to that God because maybe it was better. And this cycle goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And this is the warning. If we never get to a moment of decision if we never break out of this cycle of, of elevation, sacrifice, and despair, here's what happens. Verse 5, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. That's the warning, family, of the addiction cycle. That's where it's going to lead you, no matter what God you happen to be serving. My prayer is that that would lead you to a moment of decision, though. That you'd want to get out of that cycle. 
that you'd want to find something new. And the only way that you begin to do that is if you get past the symptom down to the sickness. Because you, you can't just ask, what is it that it looks like that I'm addicted to on the surface? I would really encourage you to ask these two questions when it comes to absolutely everything in your life. The first one is, what is it that I feel I must have or I'm a dead man or a dead woman? In other words, what is the real savior of my life? What am I looking to as my source? And then the second question is, what core need am I looking to that thing to give me? Am I, what, am, what am I trying to get out of it? Am I trying to get significance? Am I trying to get security? Am I trying to get purpose from that thing? Now, once you've identified these false saviors or idols or gods, you have to ask the question, how do you break out of it then? How are you, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to find a new way out? How are you going to get out of bed with the things that you're in bed with currently? And, and I love this because Jeremiah doesn't leave us without some answers. Because he says if you want freedom from these things, God doesn't just want to help you identify the problem. He wants to lead you out. He has a way out for you. He has a restoration plan. Now, here's where that restoration plan begins. You have to, you have to change the way that you see your sin. You have, to change, you have to have a renewed understanding of the effect of your sin. Now, listen to what he says in verses 1 to 3. This is what the Lord says. Remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. The first fruits of the harvest. All who de- devoured her were guilty and were held guilty and disaster overtook them. See... Oftentimes we think of sin as breaking the law of God, right? When you think that you've done something wrong, when you've sinned, when you've lied, when you've stealed, when you've murdered, when all of these different things, you think, I have, I have done something and I have broken God's law and he will either punish me or forgive me of my action. Isn't that the way that we, th- we think? And so we think that sin is doing bad things. And so if I'm going to get better, if I'm going to see a a break in the cycle, then I need to stop doing bad things and I need to start doing good things instead. And and so we tell ourselves things like, I shouldn't do that. And we tell other people, you shouldn't do that. I have a friend that says we shouldn't all over people sometimes because we just we should and we should and we shouldn't and we shouldn't because we think that it's, it's bad and it's wrong to do these things and we need to do other things. If you have kids, here's one thing that you learn immediately. What happens when you tell kids that they shouldn't do something? They want to do it. Don't play with that ball. I just told you not to play with the ball. Like, it's, it's the first thing that they do. Every time you say you shouldn't do something, it leads you to want to do it even more. And so if you tell yourself, I shouldn't drink alcohol, I shouldn't look at pornography, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't eat this, I, I shouldn't be with this person, I shouldn't do that, all it does is make you feel guilty over the thing that you want to do. 
So when you do it, you feel guilt, which you think will leave you to break the cycle, but it just ingrains you in the cycle because it's powerless to stop you from doing it the next time. So you have to realize something, that, that when we commit these things, what's the thing that's going on in our hearts at the moment of decision, when we go to that false idol, we're not just breaking the law of God, we're breaking the heart of God. We're breaking His heart, we're not breaking His law. His law was set up so that we might live lives that don't break His heart, and yet we do it. I don't know if you ever watched somebody go through divorce before. And many of you have been through that and you understand how devastating of an experience it is to watch someone or to be the person who goes through that. I had a chance early on in my walk with God to watch a dear friend walk through that experience who loved someone and gave their heart and their life to someone and to watch them walk away from them and then give their heart and their life to somebody else. And it broke him. It was terrible to walk through that as a friend with him. And some of you have been through that experience and it's horrible, isn't it? Now here's the thing. If you've ever been through it yourself, if you've ever walked through that with a friend, then you have just a small taste of what it's like to be God. Because that's exactly how God feels when we walk away from him to other gods. That's what sin is. It's breaking the heart of God. And God is going, don't you remember how you were my bride and I was your groom? Do you remember how passionately in love we were and how I would go to battle for anyone who came and tried to steal you away from me, who tried to bring harmful things into your life? That's the gospel. That even though God is holy and complete, that he does not need us one bit, he has willingly and vulnerably bound himself to us and made himself in a covenant relationship with us. He's given his heart to us. And so when we live for anything other than him, we're doing the same thing to him and more than a spouse who walks out on their husband or their wife. God is saying, don't you remember how I was your significance? How I loved you and cherished you and spoke beauty and good over you and you walked away to find it in your career? Remember how I was your source of security? How how I clothed you and protected you and, and cherished you and walked with you through life? And now you walk through it with a computer screen thinking it's going to give you what only I can? Remember how knowing me and following me was your purpose. And now you're all wrapped up in something completely different. See, in other words, after you identify the root of addiction and what you're doing to ask it to fill something in you, the next step is that you have to turn to God and see how that decision, that pattern, that sin, it's not just harming you. So often when we think of destructive patterns, we go, man, I shouldn't do this anymore because it's harming me. 
Life would be so much better for me if I just broke the cycle of addiction. That's not going to start to get you out. You know what will? Knowing that it's harmed him. The one who made you, the one who saved you, the one who loves you, the one who has a plan and, 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 and a hope and a future for you. That's how you start to get out, is to realize that what your sin has done to that person. See, the only way that we start to get out is when we say, I don't want this because I hate what it's doing to him. I hate what it's doing to my relationship with him. See, that's repentance. It's not just being sorry for what it's doing to you. It's, it's being sorry for the brokenness that it's putting between you and him. Now, that's the first step. Now, here's the second one. You have to rehearse your salvation. You, have to, you, you can't, you, you got to start with the effects of your sin, but then you have to rehearse what God has done. And, and he calls Israel to, to remember he says, what, did, what fault did they find in me they, that they strayed so far from me? They never asked, where is the Lord that brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts? He, they never came to me and said, where are you, God? They never remembered how I brought them out of Egypt, how, I, they, how they were in bondage and they were in slavery and I ransomed them out and brought them through the Red Sea to a land that they didn't... They didn't cultivate themselves. I just gave it over to them. They forgot their story. He's saying the reason that we fall into the arms of other gods is because we forget our story. We forget our salvation. We forget what God has done for us. And we don't rehearse that regularly in our hearts and in our minds and in our life. And it's, it's true, isn't it? We all need to be continually rehearsed and immersed and what Jesus has done for us. And the moment that we walk away from that story, we cling to a different story. The moment that we don't get our significance from that story, we look for it in a different story every single time. There's a great um, part in The Lord of the Rings. I don't think it's in the movies, but it's in the book, where um, Pippin the Hobbit is uh, doing battle. Um, I think it's in the second book. And, um, it, I mean, it looks bad. I mean, everything looks like they're all going to get wiped out and nothing's going to save them. And then, um, in the midst of that battle, he hears a horn. And it's the horn of the riders of, of Rohan coming in to save him. And the king of Rohan ends up giving his life in battle and his death provides salvation for them. And it says later on in the book that Pippin could never hear the sound of a horn without bursting into tears. Every time he heard it, it reminded him of the sacrifice of that king who gave his life for him. And so all of us, in the same way, we, we need those horns. We need our ears open to those things to hear the, the work of God's salvation in our hearts again. All of us need that. And we don't just need it on Sundays, although Sundays are a good, maybe first step into that. We need it through worship and we need it through preaching and we need it through fellowship with one another, but you also need it in community throughout the week. Because here's what I know about myself. I remember it and I hear it when we sing together. 
But then I leave this place and Monday morning happens and I can't hear the, the horn anymore. And I need to be reminded of it. I need friends who will remind me of it. We don't just need it continually. We need it at the right moment too. You need it at the moment of your greatest weakness at the very same time. So that means you should have at least one friend who you can call upon in your moment of desperation to say, blow the horn for me again. I'm about to give myself to this other God through my computer screen. I need help in this moment. Come and remind me of my salvation. Don't just tell me not to do it because it will be bad for me. Tell me what Jesus has done for me so that I won't want to do it. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have someone you can call on to that depth, to that degree in your time of need? All of us need that. And then the last thing he says is that, this is the next, the last step on the way out. He says, we need to look in the mirror. We need to look in the mirror. Um, I love the way that he ends in verse 32. He says, does a young woman forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Let me ask, what's the purpose of a wedding dress? Why do brides wear a wedding dress on their wedding day? To look pretty. (laughs) It's the obvious answer, right? But it's the right one. It's to look beautiful. Here's what I know about wedding dresses. It turns ordinary women into radiant brides. And it doesn't matter who the bride is, right? I've never seen a bride that doesn't look beautiful and radiant and just amazing on their wedding day. Because here, wedding dress, I don't know how they did this. Maybe you guys are cued into fashion design, and I'm not. But somehow, wedding dress takes all of your imperfections and it magically transforms you into perfection. I don't know how it does it, but it seems to do it every single time. Now, here's one thing that you will never see on a wedding day. You will never see a bride get to those doors in the back of her ceremony where she's about to walk down the aisle and meet her groom and say to her dad, I forgot to put my wedding dress on. Right? I mean, that would be crazy. No bride forgets to put on her wedding dress, to put on her makeup, to put on her jewelry. Why? Because they're constantly looking in the mirror. You can't get them to turn away from the mirror long enough to snap a few pictures. I I need an amen, Aaron. (laughs) They're always looking in the mirror to make sure that they're covered. To make sure that that the things that they put on themselves are actually doing the job that they need them to do, which is to make them look like a perfect bride. I mean, And don't you see what God is saying? He's saying, just as a wedding dress and wedding ornaments hide your physical imperfections, I'm going to give you something that's going to hide your spiritual imperfections. I'm going to give you something that will will turn you into perfection. And that, what does he say? They've forgotten me. I'm the covering. God's saying, this is my promise. I can make you perfect. I can make you beautiful. 
The reason that you're out there looking for significance and security and purpose and other things is because you're trying to cover yourself. You're trying to put on a dress and ornaments. You're trying to make yourself spiritually beautiful. And and that dress that you're trying to put on is not making you look like a beautiful bride. It's turning you into a prostitute. He's saying, but I'm not just going to give you a better wedding dress. I'm going to be your wedding dress. And Jesus, when he came, he didn't just come and die to forgive us of our sins. He, he came and he died and he gave himself to make us beautiful. He is our covering. He is the thing that makes us blameless and spotless like a bride who's ready for her groom. He came as the perfect groom and laid his life down, his perfect life. So when we believe in him, his beautiful record gets transferred to us. And the reason that we look to other gods for these things is because we're trying to convince ourselves that we're beautiful. But God says, I want you to look at yourself in the mirror and see not what you see, but what I see. Because I see the perfection that I gave to make you whole. Next time you run to another God, doesn't matter what it is, the next time you give your heart over it, the next time you fall into the arms of it, the next time you spread your legs to it, I'm serious about this. I want you to go to the bathroom and I want you to look yourself in the mirror. That's going to be the hardest thing that you, the last thing that you will ever want to do in that moment. Because you will think, how in the world could I possibly look at myself after that? But I want you to do it, and here's why. Because as you're looking yourself in the mirror, knowing that you've just tried to cover yourself with filthy rags, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you ask God to show you not what you see, but what he sees. You ask him to show you the perfect wedding dress of his son that gave his life for you and died on a cross to make you beautiful in your moment of dirtiest need. You want to be convinced that you can get out of the cycle? You do that. And I'm telling you, that is going to radically transform your heart. Because you're going to look at yourself and you're not going to see the sin. You're going to see the Savior who washes that sin away and makes you new. And you'll realize I don't have to keep going back to that again and again because of what I have in Him. Do you want to see a different cycle? That's the way you get out. That's the way you get out. Let's pray and ask that He would provide that for us. God, we need you. We need to look in the mirror and we don't just need to see our sin. Some of us have lived our entire lives avoiding the mirror, avoiding acknowledging what our sin has done to us and done to other people and we're running from it and we're trying to cover ourselves over. Holy Spirit, 
put your finger on it right now. On the thing that we're running to and what we're after. And I pray in this moment that you would whisper to our hearts right now. Speak as loud as you need to. You need not run to it because I've made you beautiful. Jesus, we need to believe that so that we can get out of the cycles and find new life in you. Would you come and do that? We pray in your name. Amen.